Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. My next guest is a best-selling author, and we're going to be talking about his book, Leadership Reinvented. Pick that one up. We're going into empathy, servitude, diversity, and innovation. And there are some great thoughts he brings to the table. One of them is the role of empathy and being able to question yourself, going back and saying, hey, did I, in fact, treat this person right? Put yourself in that position. And also... One thing that he said was suspending egos and helping others. Again, going along the empathy theme. So look into eight types of love as well. I want you to Google that because I did in the show and I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Eight types of love from the Greeks? So that was a new thing for me, among other things, right? And so exploitation versus exploration was a great thought as well jump in on this one. You're going to take lots of notes. If, if, if not, I'll be surprised. But this was a wonderful conversation with Hamza Khan. Again, Leadership Reinvented. Pick that one up. Jump into the show. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a Success Magazine podcast. And today I've got Hamza Khan. He's out of New York. Yes, and sir. Background? Did I see? Are those, are those both of your books behind you? <laughs> yeah, I can't man, read they, them, but I, I think they are. They are. They are. You can see uh, leadership reinvented, my latest baby, and then my first, the burnout gamble, side by side. I had some hesitation about putting them behind me, especially for with with a volume of calls that we do. Feels a little, little, little boastful. Feels a little, uh, you know, show offy. But my my partner reminds me. She's like, hey. You got to be proud of them. You you put your heart and soul into them and they're out there in the world. They're doing their thing. They've taken a life of their own. So celebrate them. It's not, it's not showing off. You're not boasting. You're not bragging. Um, this is, this is celebration and acknowledgement. So I'm, I'm bringing that energy into this, into this episode. Agreed, man. Agreed. I look at it like a, a YouTube plaque, right? You got hey. to a hundred thousand, you got to a million. <laughs> you need to show that off, bro. That's it, man. That's it. And do things, tell people. And, and I'm actually really fascinated by you, by the work you've done, by the personal brand that you've built. And, and I just said just before we started recording that I have a talk coming up in February, um, February of 2023, where I'm going to be speaking to a bunch of realtors in Vancouver. And I was scratching my head thinking about who are some people out there in the world of real estate who are doing an exceptional job of telling their story, of doing things, and then telling their story. And lo and behold, as the fates would have it, uh, this this synchronization <laughs> happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it, man. Well, yeah, uh, things don't happen by chance, right? That's it, sir. All right, let's talk about leadership reinvented. I haven't okay. had a chance to to read it yet, but I did order it, and mm, I noticed that the subheading we're talking about empathy, servitude, diversity, and innovation, specifically in the workplace, and. I want to dive into empathy first, because I think that from my experience in, in, in the workforce, I find that the lack of empathy or the, like the lack of humility really blocks you from working together closer and then getting things done. Absolutely. Um, why did you choose empathy first before servitude, diversity and innovation? Amazing. And it's actually the chapter that I begin the exploration of human-centric leadership in the book with. It happens in reverse order. So S-I-D-E is the acronym that I used, the bright side of leadership, if you will, servitude, innovation, diversity, or empathy. But I start with the most important of those skills right from the jump, uh, empathy. It, it's strange to me that empathy is described as a soft skill. For me, it's as technical as it gets. It's the most important skill that any leader will ever cultivate. And uh, it gets right to the heart of the issue. And I, I think that's also the reason why I wrote the book in the first place. I'm fascinated by bad leaders. I'm fascinated by socially aversive leadership. Think about the worst leaders you've ever worked with. And let's call them managers. Let's not give them credit. Think about your narcissists. Think about your psychopaths. Think about your Machiavellian leaders, et cetera, et cetera. 
any villain that you're fascinated by in the world of cinema, video games, in real life, fictional, whatever the case may be, and any bosses, they all share the same common denominator. The thing that undergirds these you know, harmful traits, if you will, is what's known as the D factor of personality traits, so D hyphen factor. And it's essentially this, it's the, the relentless pursuit of individual utility. So maximizing gains for yourself while either accepting, neglecting, or malevolently provoking disutility for others. In other words, it's something that we've learned since we were kids. It's share, be nice to your siblings, make sure you include other kids from the neighborhood into your games, and uh, don't hoard all these things for yourself. But what happens, and we've seen this at least in the last you know, think about think about some some really really notable case studies as of late, right? So you think about Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, yeah, good example huh. of a bad leader who maximized utility for himself and caused disutility for the shareholders, for the uh, you know the, the participants in, in the platform. Then you think about Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, who just was convicted recently and sent to prison for I think eleven to thirteen years. Textbook example, quite literally, of a bad leader who is consumed by the de factor of personality traits. So I spend a lot of my time researching these bad leaders, uh, thinking about them, and trying to figure out solutions to this style of leadership that seems to be popular. Um, it feels like the evolution of leadership and organizational behaviors rooted very much in fear, in scarcity of resources. And as a result, what happens is you get these maladaptive forms of leadership. So this book, Leadership Reinvented, was very much an attempt to figure out what's on the other side of this coin. If we know what, if we know how bad leaders operate, if we know what drives them, how do we fix this? Like, what what is it going to take for us to lead from a place of um, that 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 isn't fear? What is the opposite of fear? And as it turns out, the opposite of fear, man. And this is going to sound strange, but I, I figured let's talk about the non-obvious things. This is this is the Brilliant Thoughts podcast. So let's let's try to go. Let's try to get into that territory. The opposite of fear is actually love. Mm, and uh, this this is strange because when I say love and work, when I say love and leadership, uh, people who are listening to this from an HR perspective are like, hold on, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> don't, don't go down this path. Love in the workplace is an HR violation waiting to happen. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about platonic love. I'm talking about extending the same unconditional positive regard that you would extend to a friend to a family member that you love, I'm essentially asking people to see the human before they see the resource. And so Leadership Reinvented is my attempt to help people operationalize and maximize human-centric traits and, and essentially reverberate love through the organization. But I never use the word love in there. But if you ask me what I'm truly writing about, that's it. Now I use other phrases, human-centricity, empathy, compassion, honesty, openness, transparency, but they all stem from the same idea, which is putting the needs of other people before your own. And I think you can't do that without empathy. Long way of saying empathy is the genesis of the human-centric style of leadership that I believe the world needs. You know, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of the platinum rule. Like there's the golden rule, which is do unto others, right? As you want to be done. Um, platinum rules treat people like they want to be treated there you go that's empathy i'm like oh, that's empathy that's Dude, that's empathy so is uh, another definition I, I heard very much related to that is standing in somebody else's shoes seeing with their eyes and feeling with their heart and it, requ it requires suspending your ego and truly inhabiting another person's world and that's honestly one of the hardest things for leaders to do given the amount of demands and and the level of demands on their time energy and attention Empathy mm -hmm. seems to be an afterthought for them because they're so busy trying to solve all of the problems themselves. Mm -hmm. They're so fixated on the how that they seldom ask the most important question that a leader should ask is who. Who? Yeah, you're so right. They start with the opposite. I, I feel like most leaders start with the bottom line, which is the money, right? That's where they start. And they sometimes never get to empathy. So as, I, as I'm thinking this through with you, if I want to improve or develop better leadership skills, would I start with empathy and then move on to servitude, diversity, and innovation? Or what does that look like? The model that I offered in Leadership Reinvented is, is a good one. I'm, and I'm, I'm sorry, the question is a good one. And hopefully this model is, is equally good. 
it's not a it's not an either or it doesn't need to happen in sequence it needs to happen simultaneously and so the the model that i use is a is a radio chart just imagine like a four quadrant four quadrants you know uh, like a, a t chart plus plus whatever you want to call that and you increase all of these traits at the same time so you increase servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. Now, sometimes some sides might be spikier than others. You might already have high innovation. And so let's say you've maximized that, then you can focus on servitude and diversity and empathy, but you might increase two at the same time, three at the same time. The point is you attempt to operationalize and maximize as many of them at the same time. Um, but know that this is a lifelong journey that, uh, you know, you're not going to do it in one quarter. You're not going to do it in one month, one year. It's probably going to take the rest of your career as a leader to get there. And I'm aware that I'm not fully developed as a leader myself. I mean, hell, I think my fascination with bad leaders stems from my behaving like a bad leader. I got to be honest, like I, we, we have these villains that exist in our imagination and in real life. And it's easy to point at them and being like, and say that, you know, that's a bad guy. That's a bad person. You know, uh, Adam Newman of, of, of WeWork, he's the villain or uh, Gordon Gecko or Miranda from The Devil Wears Prada. But the truth is how bad leadership manifests in the workplace is not that sexy. It happens in very simple ways. And I'll give you one example. I was running a digital marketing agency uh, several years ago. And we were getting a lot of press. We were getting a lot of uh, media coverage, uh, television interviews. I was being written about in, in, in publications. I, had, I was on the speaking circuit hard. And I really started to enjoy that. I really started to enjoy all the attention that was coming from being this big, shiny object, the, the face of this progressive company. Mm -hmm. And I started to lean into that. I started to spend more time finding ways to prop up my image and to, you know, I had good intentions. I thought that I, in doing so, I would be able to pass on that attention to my organization and bring in some more clients and raise our profile and awareness. But truthfully, I was doing it for myself. And that's just one small example. You know, if, if, if that sort of behavior happened at scale, if I started to extend that level of thinking to different dimensions of my leadership, of the workplace, very soon I could have tanked the company. And I came very close to tanking the company. I remember before one of our biggest pieces of publicity we were going to receive the Toronto Star, my COO emails me and he says, we're going to miss payroll this quarter. And I was like, what? Like not even a cycle, but a quarter? What? What? How did this happen? You had one job. He's like, man, I've been trying to tell you this. I've been sending you emails. I've been messaging you. I've been trying mm -hmm. to lock down a meeting with you. You haven't been in the office. You've been focused on all of these other things, but we've been losing mm -hmm. clients. Staff have been disengaged. You know, there's some counterproductive workplace behavior sinking in here. Like you've taken your eye off the ball. You've behaved in ways that are not unempathetic, uh, not present, and you're prioritizing, you're maximizing your own value while neglecting the disutility ca caused within this, this organization. He said that in a, I guess, in a much more raw way. Well, let's just say there was a lot of expletives involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, lesson learned, I cried myself to sleep that night thinking I'm an abject failure. I'm the worst entrepreneur, worst leader. And I had to mm -hmm. eat not just a slice of humble pie, but the entire goddamn pie. The next day I had to sit in front of my staff and tell them why it was that they weren't going to be able to make their rent, why it was that they weren't going to be able to take care of their, uh, you know, sick relatives, why it was that they had to put off their wedding plans and why it was going to be a lean Christmas. And uh, mm -hmm. the reason was me. The reason was my neglect. The reason was my prioritization of myself and deprioritization of them as a result. So mm -hmm. I learned from that experience, Tristan, that the future of work has nothing to do with work and has everything to do with life itself. There's real consequences for this. I'm actually curious to know, sir, if I may flip a question back at you, but I know you're shoot. deep in thought over there. Yeah, shoot. You asked a question about the role of empathy and leadership and where you would start and how you would operationalize this. I'm always questioning these these beliefs that I'm putting out into the world. And uh, you mentioned something that I, I really want to dig into a little bit over here about the bottom line. How is it that you think about the bottom line and empathy and kindness in your line of work? Because I think the direct line is, is a lot cleaner than it is in other organizations. There's still things that need to be done. Just speaking about real estate, for instance, the end of the day, there's a transaction and money needs to be exchanged. So you can be as human centric as you like, but if you're not actually moving deals forward, business is going to collapse. So how, how do you balance both of those as, as a very successful person in the space? I think you, 
you look at what your principles are first and get, what do you value the most in being in real estate? And you're like, well, I value the relationships. I value helping people get to where they want to get to and building families. And as long as we can focus on that as our primary reason, like those are our values for being in real estate, everything else falls into place because we're leading with that. And I find that that's very blurry with a lot of people, even outside of real estate. It's like, no, 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 I'm doing it for, I'm doing it for this, or I'm doing it for that. And really they're doing it for money. Right. And so that's where everything becomes transactional rather than relational. So I, and you've I think, been an entrepreneur for a very long time in this space. Do you, have you, have you seen in, in your, in your time uh, as an entrepreneur, as, as a successful business person, that people who prioritize money before they prioritize people, yeah. Do you, do, do you see how that story, like I, I, I've only started to see how that story ends, but I don't have enough data. What, what yeah. have you seen in your life? I, I think most people start with a, with a good intent to say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm going to be able to make a shit ton of money. They say, and also help a lot of people. Then it starts tweaking and, and they start seeing what money, the amount of money they can make. And they're like, Hey, maybe we can make more money. And then the other things start going off to the side making sure that the clients are being taken care of and then seeing the volume that it comes in. So uh, I have seen the opposite of, of that. And the opposite looks like you don't care. Like it's a massive lack of empathy. And you start not, what happens is 2008 happens all over again. Oh man, wow. And and that's, that's very challenging because I went through the whole 2008 thing. Right. And with the economy collapsing and real estate being at the forefront of everything, I, I participated in that and I saw what was happening and I'm like, oh, but, you know, being a newer agent and sure. newer entrepreneurship. So I, I oh. think this is why I love your your empathy, because it really it really does start with that. It's like, well, why are you doing this? Going back to Simon Sinek, like it starts with why, like, what, with why, why are you really doing this? Is it? Is it to help people get to a certain spot? Is it help to progress humanity, help them maybe one person at a time? Or is it or is it just because you want to just get rich? And there's nothing wrong with wanting that, but where along the lines does it fall into, right? And ultimately the pursuit of getting rich opens up and invites the de factor of personality traits to take hold. It's like, what are you going to do with that money? Now, some people, they have a low resolution idea of what they want to do. And it, it comes back to something that you alluded to. And I learned this term very recently, effective altruism. And Sam Bankman Fried of FTX uh, t- talked about this openly. Uh, part of his myth-making as a leader was, I'm going to make all this money and then use this money to help make the world a better place. But that's such a dangerous game to play because you can get so consumed with the acquisition of money. And it's fascinating, right? We have these shows like hoarders on TLC, where we point to people who are clearly experiencing some debilitating mental illness that are accumulating things in their home. And we watch that and it's cathartic for us as viewers, because we're like, oh, you know what? We're not as bad as them. And, you know, they're, look look at them. Oh my goodness, God, God help them. But when the same thing happens for millionaires and billionaires, we put them on a Forbes list when they accumulate all this money. And I got frustrated earlier this year where uh, it was Jeff Bezos of Amazon. And I'm saying this right now, fully aware, cognitive dissonance. Part of my brain's like, if you say this on a podcast, as big as brilliant <laughs> thoughts, they're never going to want to work with you. But I'm just going to say it anyways, because you know what? This is the vibe right now. Um, he said in an interview, I haven't found my philanthropic identity yet. And I remember getting so frustrated that I wanted to like flip my table, being like, what the hell? You're only the richest guy on the planet. Like, what are you doing with that money, man? How have you not found your philanthropic identity? You're, you're a middle-aged dude. Like, we have some real pressing problems. I, I can write a list for you, sir. Give me a call here. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, he finally decided he was going to commit most of his wealth. And it was very clear about where that money was going to go. So I like that. That's the transition from effective altruism to true altruism. Like you're doing something with your money that goes yeah. above and beyond yourself. May I ask, Tristan, do you have any kids? Yeah, I've got two, man. How about you? Two kids. Not yet working on it, but I feel like that is the ultimate... Uh, blessing a but from a perspective of empathy like I, I imagine it's hard to be a father hard to be a parent without empathy uh and yeah. so it's almost like nature's way of of in, infusing empathy at the correct levels within an individual 
And I like to use this example in, in when, I, when, I, when I'm speaking with leaders and doing coaching and, and whatever the case may be. And I think it's going to be a big focus of my next book project, which is we understand as human beings how to extend love to other people. And I think I'm fascinated by parents because there's no playbook for this. If there was a playbook for this, there wouldn't be a huge section at Barnes and Nobles that changes every month with how to parent books. But I think that there's like a, there's a hard coded, maybe it's in our DNA. I don't know what, what, maybe it's in our culture, but we just know that when there is a kid and I see this with my sister, I see this with my niece. There's a part of you that says, I'm going to stop living for me and I'm going to start living for this other human being. And I think once that's activated, if we can find a way to harness that energy and bring it into the workplace, oh my goodness, I get really excited about what the future of work and therefore the future of life might look like. If everybody behaved with the same attitude of extending unconditional positive regard and trying to help other people, man, that is the way out. That is the way out of our current problem right now. And the current problem is, uh, I think uh, we're truly in a cycle of fear, in a cycle of fear that's 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 encouraging unnecessary competition, separation, alienation, a self-world, a self-nature split. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but hmm. yeah. I, I agree with you on that part, man. I think the challenge is that in parenting or in, in running a business or just in living, because we see so many mental health issues, I think part of that is that we decide not to take action in a certain direction because we're scared that it might not turn out to anything good and we might make mistakes so i think part of that whole fear that you brought up initially is having to do with inaction because we're scared to take any type of action and i think that's where that's where we start building something great for for our kids or or anything else because in the action is in the discovery it's like that, that didn't work right but hey this this did and they responded well to that let's go let's go more that route and the challenge is that the current atmosphere doesn't seem to allow for mistakes. So, so that becomes a bigger challenge because now, now I'm even more scared to take certain action because I'll be judged and I'll be judged publicly and I may be canceled for making a mistake. So this is why empathy, I, I love this, man. It goes right yeah. into everything at the core everything, of everything. everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I love this, man. So there, I have a question I, for you. You mentioned yeah, yeah, go for it. You mentioned not making payroll mm -hmm. and you reflecting deeply and, and then going back and saying, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to, hopefully I'm never going to do this again so that I don't find myself in a similar situation. How do you keep that in check? How do you reflect on that often? So you don't go back to that. Great question. And um, I hope, I hope at some point to like bring back my thinking around the 2008 financial crisis around this. I'm obsessed with it as a case study. In fact, right as of right now, I'm, I'm watching a couple of movies that are exploring that crisis from different perspectives. Obviously, The Big Short, Too Big to Fail is the one I'm watching right now. Uh, mm. The Fall of Lehman Brothers. I mean, wow, my understanding of it now in the context of leadership is very different than what I was perceiving it as a young man in the world, just being like, hey, there's this thing that seems to be really bugging the adults in my life. What's going on? Here? <laughs> What's going on? So how do I keep this in check? Okay, um, for all the listeners, viewers, here's the spoiler alert for every movie you're ever going to watch. You're going to see this time and again. And I tested this very recently. I watched Strange World. I watched Tar, Disenchanted, and Too Big to Fail. The exact same plot. Now you're thinking, wow, these are like four very different movies, but the plot is identical. There's a protagonist who's in a current way of being who needs to transition into a new way of being. And that new way of being involves them suspending their ego and helping others. That's it. Literally every hero has to go through this journey. The hero's journey is not complete until the protagonist realizes that they need to help other people. Now, the spoiler alert I say this is because if you want to know who the villain in any story is, if you want to look at the antagonist, they share the exact same trait. Again, the de factor of personality. They are prioritizing themselves and their utility over everybody else. So in the 2008 financial crisis movies that I'm watching, it's the bankers. It's the people who are giving into moral hazard, who are giving into... Um, adverse selection, you know, who are who are maximizing returns for themselves, but causing disutility to Americans and the world at large. In Dischanted, you can clearly see it's Maya Rudolph's character. In Tar, it's uh, Kate Blanchett herself. And I forgot the other movie I mentioned just now, but it's, it's all the same thing. So how do I keep myself in check? It's reminding myself that 
as counterintuitive as it seems in the moment, the right thing to do is to always prioritize other people. And I'm saying this as a business owner and a business leader. It is the hardest thing for me to do because when I wake up in the morning, I do a diagnostic, I get the summaries, and I'm like, okay, so this is the target we need to hit. I think about my work in terms of sports quite a bit, which is very much a zero-sum game, but I have to remind myself that the work that I'm doing is positive-sum. The work that you're doing, Tristan, is positive-sum, but I like the simplicity of the analogy. It's like, I got to put points up this quarter. You know, I'm going into game three this week, and I got to make sure that this is the the deals that I close, et cetera. There's, there's some hard metrics, but I have to check my intention. Why am I doing this? I'm not doing this to make money. I'm not doing this to buy things. I'm not doing this to pay down a mortgage. I'm not doing this. I mean, those are byproducts of doing the right thing. And the right thing to do is to center my work around the human experience. So the way you said it earlier about real estate, I'm going to take that. I'm going to quote you on that, sir. When I go and speak to this real estate group in Vancouver, I'm going to say the reason why you do what you do is to help people own homes, to build families, to create communities. Like there's an there's a higher purpose to this work. And if you fixate on that, if you chase that, the business figures itself out. That's so, so true, man. I got to remind myself in some, um, my, my work is really to help people thrive in the future of work, to get out of survival mode and thrive. And if I do that, honestly, the business will figure itself out. I like that, man. That's really good. All Thank right, you, so- Going past empathy and going into servitude, and look, I remember you telling me all four, you're working on all four mm -hmm. simultaneously, mm -hmm. right? And, and some may be working more on others because they're not doing so great there, but they're doing okay over here, right? Sure. But let's go into servitude because I think for, for what I'm looking at, it plays well into what's next. So empathy, now I'm like, okay, I'm in, I'm in a, a humility state right now and i want to come from a place of helping others and, and putting them first like you said you center your world around helping people yeah so where does servitude fall into this and how does it look i appreciate that man so empathy we had to spend a lot of time on that because that's the big one i promise my answers from here on out will be a lot more concise um servitude is interesting because i recently did a talk where somebody took objection to the term servitude they said that it's tied up, it's, it seems too similar to, to serve, like, you know, servant leadership, which then brings up ideas around slavery. And I understand, obviously, as a fellow American, that's a, that's a topic that is, is very uh, touchy, is, is not even the right word for it, but it's a very sensitive topic over here. The origin of the term servant leadership was very much rooted in a Christian context, uh, thinking about Jesus Christ being of service to other people. So I just want to be very clear when people hear servitude, that's what we're talking about. It's not about being a slave. It's not, not about being a servant. It's about being of service to other people. And I, I like that you're dovetailing this from empathy because empathy, I think, is like the requisite mindset, the precondition. And then servitude in many ways is an opera, operationalization of, of empathy. In a nutshell, it's this. It's about being of service to everyone in your team. Best example I can think of, and I wrote about him in, in, in Leadership Reinvented, was Phil Jackson, uh, coach of the Los Angeles Lakers and Chicago Bulls. Arguably the best player on the team, but didn't play a single minute of the game. His whole job was to make sure everybody else on the team was self-actualized, well-trained, well-resourced, had fair demands and resources across the organization and removed obstacles from their path. That's what it is. And he had to do that every single day, knowing that there was a possibility that players would leave the organization and he still had to invest in them as though they were going to stay. So that's what servitude is. It's the relentless belief in maximizing others' potential. Wow, dude. Maximizing others' potential. I like that a lot. That's it, sir. Like, that's it. You're empowering them, right? And you just have to find out how. And what's interesting is there. There's that's another. The, the Greeks are interesting. They have eight different words for love, eight different manifestations of love. In North America, we're the ones who are so hung up on love being associated with romance and sex and whatnot. But one of the most pure definitions of love I could find, and I'm gonna, I get this wrong. I get really got to commit and memorize this. It's about investing in the spiritual development of another human being. That's it, man. And like, to me, that's what servitude is in a nutshell. It's really just investing in the spiritual development of another human being, helping them to become better than you in every single way, as counterintuitive as that seems. 
dude, I'm still stuck on eight different meanings of love. I had no <laughs> <Yeah>. idea. <laughs> this what? podcast is a form of that love, right? Like there's like a, there's, there's a relationship happening across the coast over here. I feel a connection to you. Dude, Hopefully man, you feel a connection to me. And yes. this is a form of love as weird as that sounds to say. I'm oh, sorry. You know, as weird I, as that it was weird as a, that, that, that is to say, and as you. weird as it sounds. <laughs> I got you. All right. Now, just for everybody listening, because I'm being educated. So thank you, Hamza. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to just go through the ones that I found online. Here he goes. Okay. Eros is romantic, passionate love. Philia is affectionate love, like for a friendship, right? That's what it says. Uh, agape means selfless, universal love. Oh, I like that my, one. My favorite right. one. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good one. Uh, storge, familiar love. Uh, it says between family members. I like that. Ma- mania or mania, obsessive love. Ooh, damn, dude, obsessive love. Look at that. It turns into an obsession. Hey, <laughs> uh, I, that's an interesting one. Ludus or ludus, playful love. Mm-hmm. Hmm, dude. Pragma, enduring love. I like that one. Mm-hmm. I like that. And last one is philatia or philatia. It's self-love. Uh, <laughs> Dude, I, this is so new to me. I was like, I, I don't Same, know why man. I never even jumped into that. Thank you for, for sharing that with me. I love that. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Th- thank you for creating a space where we can have this conversation. There's not many contexts in which a conversation about love and leadership and entrepreneurship can happen in such a fluid way. And that's a, that's a testament to you and the community you've built. Well, well, thanks for jumping on, man. I appreciate it. Well, we we still have some stuff to go. So next diversity. Okay. What um, what does that look like? Is it are we talking about being inclusive? Are we talking about what when it comes to diversity? Okay. Well, uh, may I ask, Tristan, I don't want to make any assumptions based on your last name, but uh how do you identify in terms of race and ethnicity? Um, well, my parents are both Mexican, so okay. I was just born in Los Angeles. So I, I usually say I'm American and the people ask, where are you from? Oh, I go, my parents are Mexican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. They ask us these questions as as brown Americans, right? Um, I was All born in Queens, Astoria, Queens, New York, but I can't just walk into a room and be Hamza. I have to be Hamza with that exotic name. <laughs> you know, I have to be. I have to be a person of color. That's right. And they ask me where I'm from. And I'm like, what are you really asking? Like, I'm from New York. Yeah. And I, I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a Canadian citizen. Served in the Canadian Armed Forces as a reservist. Pay all my taxes. No criminal record. I mean, I'm, a, I'm as American as baseball. I'm as Canadian as maple syrup. But the question is mostly well intentioned. Where are you really from? And so I, I find it frustrating that we get so hung up, at least in America, with, with a debate about diversity. We talk about diversity of ethnicity, diversity of gender, diversity of sexuality, diversity of uh, orientation. And to me, you know, these are important conversations to have, but when we're talking about them in the business context, we're barely scratching the surface. This is the tip of the iceberg. What we really want, the business case for diversity is diversity of background, perspective, and experiences. That's what we need. As leaders, we need diversity of background, perspective, and experiences, because when we have that, we have better situational awareness, better understanding of changes on the inside and the outside of the organization. But as we've seen with a lot of case studies, and some of the most recent ones that come to mind is uh, Colin Kaepernick kneeling, the NFL, right? Classic example of a leader who turned to his very homogenous group of leaders and said, what do we do about this? Nobody saw it coming. Nobody knew how to react. And mind you, the NFL, an organization at the time, 2016, um, I think 70% of players at the time were black. How many of the leaders of the NFL were black? Zero. So of course they didn't know what to do when Black Lives Matter was going down. Of course they didn't know why Colin Kaepernick kneeled and what was the context and what was the underlying message. Talk about a lack of empathy in that moment. In fact, the NFL, if you look back, they went on the offensive. They decried him. They exercised him from the NFL only to turn around a year or two later, I think two Super Bowls later, being like, we really messed up. Roger Goodell went on record. You can look this up, not conjecture. He said, Black lives do matter. That was a huge mistake to shun Colin Kaepernick. We're going to not only double, we're going to triple, quintuple our efforts to help Black communities, to help Black Americans and you know, combat anti-Black racism. So here's the, here's the thing. 
we could have avoided that altogether. Roger Goodell, you didn't have to go through that. Pepsi, you didn't have to go through this. All of these organizations, because if you just empowered diverse people, you could trust that diversity of people tends to correlate positively with diversity of background experience and perspective. So just by prioritizing the diversity and inclusion of people with different backgrounds, ethnicities, race, genders, uh, orientations, but beyond that age, beyond that political ideology, beyond that thinking style, beyond that physical ability, beyond that military status, by representing the world outside of your organization, inside of your organization, you as a leader will have access to better information and better people to anticipate and respond to change when it inevitably happens. That's very well said, man. Appreciate like that. And I've had a lot of time to think about that as somebody, again, and I, the reason I asked that the question about how do you identify is I, I'm sure you've got your, your fair share of stories where how you appear in the world got in the way of you accessing opportunities. I can't even imagine how many stories like that you have. Yeah, um, and now we look back at this years from now and you're like, wow, I mean, I was right. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the people who either got in the way obstructed your ability to, to earn an opportunity or, or, or made you feel any type of way negatively, uh, are regretting that decision. And I just feel like in 2022, it's just, it's, it's my only pet peeve. It's like, why are we still talking about this as though it's, it's up for debate? So Dave, that was, that was me saying every last thing I wanted to say about diversity in the book. I'm like, guys, <laughs> it's, it's not, a, it's not a nice to have anymore. Like this is, there's actually a real business case here. Don't even think about it as part of some sort of like left woke agenda. I, I'm talking about like how this is going to help you as a leader, how this is going to build your business. Yeah. It goes, it goes back to what, what we're talking about at the core of this for, for this conversation. And that's the business aspect of it. Right. So yeah, I think we stick to that. And diversity is definitely needed because I also hear both sides of the story where it's like diversity will allow you to be able to grow faster and create different opportunities that you're not even looking at for business. But then I also see and hear the other side of this and saying, hey, well, diversity actually isn't as good because it takes us to places we don't want to go. We want to be very closed in our approach. So. Now, when we're looking at a business, not not humanity, right? <laughs> a business side of this, um, I can see that as far as products, but when you're talking about people, <laughs> that changes, right? This is very, very interesting. And I, and I think about this all the time too, right? So, so my partner is white and it's interesting, you know, her family, if you look at them, their words, they would describe themselves as rednecks, right? I would never say that about them. I love them to death. But uh, this idea that there's, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I got to be very nuanced over this, but let's just put it this way. Um, you can be white and not experience the white privilege that you think uh, uh, exists for all white people. So just the, the the point I'm trying to make over here, and wow, I got to really think about that because in saying that, I'm like, did I fuck up? Like, am I going to get canceled for saying that? You're um, good. You're good. Allow, allow me to reflect on this a little bit. The point I'm trying to make ultimately is that, uh, wow, I don't know why I'm scared. I don't know why I'm scared. I just said that, but no, you know it's what? It's okay. I'll trust that. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll leave, we'll leave, we'll leave that in the podcast. Right. And, and, and I'm happy to I'm happy to elaborate on that, but I want to bring it back to a business context and maybe yeah. it'll come back and explaining this. So I'm studying right now this, this spectrum that exists called exploitation versus exploration on two opposite ends. You can look, I think it's called the exploitation exploration scale. Um, and exploitation is basically doing what you already know, like leaning into things that are familiar. And it's really important for like early resource accumulation, perhaps even innovation. And exploration is all about stepping outside of your comfort zone. And so I think about, I think about, you know, the, the leaders out there who are listening to this thinking that, hey, you know, if I hire people like me, if I hire people who look like me from the same school, who, who share the same thoughts, that is going to be better for unilateral decision-making and, and innovating and whatever the case may be. Let's put that aside. And then there's a leader listening to this right now who's thinking, huh, if I bring in people in my organization who don't look like me from other walks of life, who will challenge my thinking, this will actually slow me down as a leader. I'm going to lose my power. Okay, well, let's look at two case studies over here. The first case study, this already happened. It's called the lost decade at Microsoft. So Steve Ballmer, during his 14-year tenure as Microsoft CEO, stack the deck 
with people that looked just like him, who thought like him, similar backgrounds. And in doing so, they were unable to capitalize, I believe, on the five biggest tech trends today. There's a reason why you and I are not using Microsoft phones. And it has to do with Steve Ballmer's insistence on prioritizing profits over people. Now, he had well good intentions, I want to believe, right? I believe that he wanted to increase shareholder value. I think he wanted to increase Microsoft's profitability. And he said the best way to do this is by investing in, again, a homogeneity of people except that backfired in the biggest way possible. He reduced Microsoft's valuation by more than a half. And he's now remembered as the worst CEO in public, in, in uh, uh, the worst CEO of a publicly traded company in American history. This is not even my words. You can look this up. This is Forbes. They've, they published this. Wow. But he bought the Clippers. So you got to think of that. But here's the thing. He maximized, he maximized individual value, right? Like that, that for him is an immortality project. It's funny you say that, right? Because I, I, I spoke about this at a conference recently. And two guys, they put their hands up and they're like, hey, you did say we could offer you rude remarks. We think you're absolutely wrong. Steve Ballmer succeeded. And I'm like, individually, maybe. Yeah. And on, in, in the, in the, in, on, along the vortex of money. But in the grand scheme of things, like what did he really do, right? But yeah, he did buy the Clippers. And I, I, I <laughs> you're like, hey, here, the here's the thing. I'm, I'm a little sore about that because he took uh, Kawhi Leonard away from us. Yeah. But look, man, Which that's is, another story yeah. for another time. Depreciating that's asset, man. Just saying. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, God bless, I see your man. point. It, it makes it makes a lot of sense, man. Like you can see the the dynamics of your your four items here in play. When and Tristan, if, if I may, before I shoot myself in the foot, I finally got the idea that I that I started with, oh, with that really shoot. problematic premise over there. It's not black and white, right? Simply hiring people that are diverse isn't enough. Uh, you actually have to activate them. You have to include them. Diversity is inviting people to the party. Inclusion is asking them to dance. And I think about but this family over here who on the surface, you know, you see them and you're like, yeah, they're good. They're taken care of. They're white, right? I'm like, it's not that easy, right? When you when, when you look uh with, with, with look look at the issue with with, with finer resolution you realize that uh, more work needs to be done at the level of inclusion and so i i understand the criticism sometimes that simply hiring somebody that's diverse is going to solve the problem it's not like you can you can bring us onto your boards you can bring us into your companies but if you're doing that to just essentially show your investors or put an idea out into the world that you are a diverse company that's not enough that's tokenism that's how you end up with tokenism yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. I agree. I love how you phrased it. You don't just ask somebody to the to the party. You actually ask them to dance. Too. That's it, man. That's it. That was beautiful. I love that. Which plays perfectly into innovation because you're talking about exploration, right? In that previous sentence yeah. that you had, mm -hmm. how how do we how do we play into this? Because for me, that's the first word out of the four that steps out of working on the self, right? Uh, and because then here, now you're fully going out and saying, well, where does innovation come from? So I wanna know what you what you mean by the defini definition of innovation in your book. It's so funny you ask this because in listening to one of your previous podcast episodes, the gentleman whose first name is elusive to me, but his last name is Lido, and I appreciated you pronouncing Derek. that for the audience. Derek, Derek, Derek Lido. Yeah. I'm con I'm confusing it with John Lithgow. Lithgow. So oh, I said he's John also Lido. great. <laughs> yeah, he's also great. But this is Derek Lido. I want to update my definition of innovation in the context of entrepreneurship. What I what I was writing down and listening to that podcast was it was all about uh, a pattern that develops over time and just the ability to simplify decisions because multiple people have experimented against a certain problem. But I think that fits with my definition of innovation which is new creative ideas, new thoughts, new imaginations. It's all about producing some sort of deviation from the status quo um, with the intention of renewing an enterprise or initiating a new enterprise. An enterprise could be project, company, way of thinking, whatever the case may be. Um, essentially, it's about changing before change is required. That's 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 the essence of, of my perspective on innovation. And in many ways, innovation is a byproduct of diversity, of empathy, and of servitude. Because if you enable people properly, if you get out of their way and allow them to achieve self-actualization and give them the ability to make decisions, if you as a leader create more leaders, I think the natural byproduct is 
enhanced innovation capacity. People who are able to imagine change well before it happens, detect change before it happens, and hopefully feel empowered enough to respond to it. Dude, you said something here that was really good. Um, well, a lot of shit that you said was amazing. Hopefully but, a brilliant thought. Uh, uh, it, was, it was good. It was good. Here, uh, <laughs> you said uh, when it comes to innovation, and everyone listening in here, when it comes to innovation, uh, you, you create change before change is required. And here's the, here's the other piece that I'm piecing together now. Although we left innovation for the end, like all of the other pieces, empathy, servitude, and diversity is how you help this innovation take hold. Because without, without those other three, you have no true innovation that takes hold. And, and remember when we were interviewing Derek uh, Lido, is that his name, Derek? Yeah, Derek. Um, he said that it has to take hold. Like there have, it has to be other people that, that kind of say, oh yeah, you know what? That is a great idea. And especially the people you're leading, like with your book, right? By the way, everybody pick it up, Leadership Reinvented. Um, but yeah, if you want to be a great leader, not, not only do you do you have this innovation, which is people throwing out all the time, innovation, innovate, do this, you know, be creative. Um, you have to allow people to understand what you're doing and believe in it. And the only yeah. way to do that is going back to inviting people to the party and having them dance with you. This Absolutely. Is, you know, Absolutely. I'm seeing the full circle here. I love this. And what's really cool is you came very close to the way I structured it in the book without even reading the book, which is really impressive in, the, in terms of your ranking of the traits, right? So uh, the values. I started with empathy, then I went into servitude, innovation, and diversity. But in the way that we've discussed it on this episode, I actually like your structure better. If there was any sequence to that that was linear, I would go empathy, servitude, diversity, and innovation. But then I love your point at the end, how it's full circle. You can't have innovation without the first three. And E presupposes the other three. So, and you know, when, when I wrote, when I wrote this book, those were the four values that popped up to me. I felt good about at the time, but I don't know if, if you feel the same way too, uh, Tristan, but whenever I say something or put something out into the world, I'm always critical of it. Like the minute it leaves my hands, I'm like, oh man, I had so much more to say. Do I really believe in that? And then what happens is like full circle. I People tell me about it. We talk about it. It percolates. And then I'm like, oh yeah, there was some good shit there. So thank you, man. This, is, <laughs> That's funny. this, this, this podcast is, uh, you know, helping me to, to stand up straight and be like, oh man, I believe in what you wrote, brother. <laughs> this is great, man. I love this. Thank you. Thank you. If, if I may like uh, bring it all together with one quick anecdote here. Shoot. One of the, and this is a quick one, I promise. The, the, on my first day as a leader, my very first leadership opportunity, my, 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 my mentor at the time, dear friend of mine now, uh, my boss, Alan, sits, sits me down for our very first meeting. So day one of the job, first one-on-one, -on -one, I'm a new leader. And he says, so your job over the next year is to write yourself out of a job. And I was like, I was like, sir, excuse me. He's like, yeah, this is your job <laughs> as a leader. I was like, I don't get it, man. Like, I just got a team. I just got resources. Uh, like, this is not what leaders do. He's like, this is exactly what leaders do. If you succeed in writing yourself out of a job, look at the things that are going to happen. You're going to hire the right people. You're going to document your processes. You're going to establish a culture. You're going to create orders of operation. Um, you're going to create repositories of information. And you are going to create enough trust with your team that they're not, they're not going to need you anymore. It'll run autonomously. You build a system. And then I said, yeah, but I'm still going to be out of a job. He's like, that's what you think, but you're going to be then uh, chosen to replicate the same system in other areas of the organization. You're actually going to level up. We're going to give you more responsibility. The reward of writing yourself out of a job is you're given more jobs. And I was like, whoa. Okay, this doesn't make sense right now. It sounds really cool, Alan. <laughs> that's fine. But I trust you, man. I trust you, and uh, that's what I did. I, and I, I've endeavored throughout my career um, as much as possible to 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 embody that, and and to to hire the right people, uh, to hire my weaknesses, to make sure that I'm the least smart person, least capable person in the room, and create more leaders. As counterintuitive as that feels in the moment, I like the way you look at it, man. That's really nice. Thank you, man. So what's your next book about? You know, I got to be honest with you. I, I'm i afraid to talk about it because of how absurd it seems. But 
this this conversation, I, I believe that every conversation is is um, divinely aligned, and this one is is very powerful for me because I get the sense that uh, you are genuinely resonating with this idea of love in the workplace. So I think the next project is to say something non-obvious about the role of love in all of its variations uh, in the world of work. But I want to say something that goes beyond work and really speak about the future of life itself through this thing that we spend most of our life doing, which is waking up and applying ourselves at a craft and in the pursuit of some tangible and intangible rewards that help us and help the people around us. And so I want to find a way to, to, to help everybody make decisions, small decisions. I'm not asking for grand sweeping legislation. I'm not asking for revolutionary products or ideas, but the next time you feel compelled to fire somebody versus have a coaching conversation, the next time you feel compelled to um, take resources away from somebody because they, they failed on a project versus working with them to understand what happened and create the circumstances that could allow them to reattempt that better. Um, the next time you feel like being vindictive in the workplace because somebody has been an ass to you, instead approach them from a place of empathy. Uh, again, I want to help tilt these micro decisions that might be anchored in fear and move them to a place of love. And if we can do this, 9 billion people, if 9 billion people can do this, and we got a real shot at utopia. I'll read that book. Just let me know when hey, it's out. <laughs> I got I, I to gotta use you as a case study, man. So you, you, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be part of the process. I love it, man. I love it. Well, thanks for being on there. Where do where do people find more about you? Uh, Thank you Instagram, man. Facebook, Twitter, where do we go? Uh, a couple of places now. Now that I've I've spent some time studying you, uh, you know, seeing the way you've built your brand, I'm like, man, I'm slacking over here. I gotta get back on this and I gotta I gotta step my TikTok game up. So let me put that out there. Um in order, I would say hamzak.com, H-A-M-Z-A-K.com is where you can find all of my social media links and things that I'm working on. But if you want to read more about me, my bio, my speaking, all my projects, that's hamzakhan.ca. That's also available at the Hamza K link tree. Um, and I am promising you and all the listeners that I will become more active on social media the way you're uh, very generous and brilliant host is. And uh, thank you for for modeling that behavior and extending the runway of possibility for me and uh, the other listeners. Dude, we need to have you on our Discord channel for success on uh, one of these I'm mornings. I'm in. All right, we'll bring you up. I'll, I'll get your information after everyone. Pick up the book. And you know what? While you're at it, pick up his second book. It's the first one's Leadership Reinvented. That's the latest one. Yes, and the previous one to that one, The Burnout Gamble. Um, I just ordered. I just ordered the second one too. So. Oh man, thank you. You're very kind, sir. I would have sent you a book, uh, but that I, I, I got one, one author to another. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com/podcast to hear more just like it. <laughs>